repeat through some of the other um, prophecies that we're going to see. Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament. Super important book. A lot of things that we understand about Messiah we're going to get from the book of Isaiah and studying the book of Isaiah. Um, so as we do so, you know, there's a, there's a site I use occasionally for overviews. If you are in women's study, you're aware of it because Kathy's probably showed you the Bible Project. I'm gonna, we're going to watch a couple of quick videos on Isaiah from the Bible Project because they do a really good job of kind of laying out for us the big picture. Okay, where there'll be little pictures we look at as we study our way through, and I'm going to keep referring back to the big picture, but I, I want you to have an opportunity to see the big picture first. Does that make sense? So we're going to take a look real quick at the big picture, and then uh, and then we'll dive in. Let it rip. Hopefully. The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God. And Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sins. 
And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment. But because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity, and it's described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin, and one day is going to be replaced by the New Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance and the city is miraculously saved overnight. 
But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. The book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king and all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with, a new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question. That is, who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile, in other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile is past. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now remember, chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. 
Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant, but God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all of the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic king from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten and ultimately killed by his own people. In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then, after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just alive again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship with God. And so this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility and turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants and also the seed. Remember the holy seed from chapter 6. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic kingdom. But there are others who are called simply the wicked, and they reject both the servant and his servants, which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. And he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. 
The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance, where the servants confess Israel's sin, and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them, and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, on each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry, and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice in bringing a renewed creation where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah. I, I just wanted to give you guys an opportunity, because sometimes it's so hard, such a big key to interpreting the word of God is, Having an idea of where you're going. Where's the story going? What's happening? <clears throat> What's going on? And so it's such a, a great opportunity for us to do it. As we look at this, and tonight we're primarily going to be taking a look at an overview, we want to understand that God has called all people, but particularly His own people, to do a couple of things. Lay down their pride. We ever heard that before? Lay down our pride and be dependent on Him. Trust God. Now, this is a uh, struggle in the human condition, right? Do we all struggle with laying down our pride and standing humbly or kneeling humbly before our God? Do we all struggle with being able to trust God in the midst of whatever things are going on uh, and not trust ourselves to get us out of it? These are going to be primary themes as we work our way through the book of Isaiah. He wants this through his people, this attitude of humility and dependence or trust in him, so that we, or his people, become a light to others. The nation of Israel was to become a light to whom? The Gentiles, right? And then at the end of Matthew, what did Jesus uh, commission us to do? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples, right? Kind of sounds like the same thing. To be a light. Genesis tells us like this, that God created man, how? In his own image. And part of that concept that we should understand is that God created man, mankind, to be an imager. Someone who, who uh, reflects who God is who has that responsibility 
in his life. We are imagers of God. How do we image God? Humility and dependence. So what do we see in the fall, in the beginning, in Genesis? Well, we see a sense of pride and independence, right? The opposite things. As we look at Isaiah, Isaiah is going to be dealing with a lot of these things in our own in a, that we see in our own life and that we see throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's a great overview, really, of the, of the story of God's redemption of man. And as we take a look at it, we want to understand that God is delivering, or His desires to deliver the wicked from destruction. Ezekiel, six times, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would repent and live. So God's goal is that the wicked repent. Now, how are the wicked going to repent? By God's imagers. God's imagers reflecting the love, the grace, the glory of God in their surroundings provides the message to the nations to escape their own destruction through their own pride and independence and to submit and trust God. This is the, the theme that we want to see. So, as we look, as we work our way through it, the central theme of the book is going to be this struggle. The real struggle. Okay? I can say the words of, of what it's supposed to look like, but you and I know the real struggle, right? Do you know it? If you think you're better than Israel, you, we need to go back to the beginning. Because when Adam and Eve fell, there was no Israel. And there's no Israel all the way to chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 22 of Genesis. That's a long ways into the book. As we look at what God's doing, what we're seeing is a struggle of men. Mankind has this struggle within himself. So Isaiah is really going to look at this. It's really going to kind of develop the idea. Now, when we look at chapter 1, here's what we're going to see in the beginning. In the very beginning, which we won't get very far tonight. But sit tight. I'm hoping that we have a good grip of it as we jump in. What we're going to see in chapter 1 is that mankind is corrupted, rebellious, and ultimately on the road to destruction. And that even in that state, God's people, he's talking to, to Israel, to Judah and Jerusalem, even in that state, they are still called by God. As his people. And one of the things I want us to really recognize is that's no different than our relationship with Christ today. We are called of God, right? If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we have entered into what the Bible calls the elect, the elect of God. Where, where do the elect of God live? In Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are the elect of God. You're standing within that election chosen of God. But what are we in reality? Do we still struggle with sin? Do we still make bad choices and decisions? So we're still dealing with our own corruption, just like chapter 1 is going to talk about Israel. We're still dealing with our own uh, uh, corruption, the road of destruction that sometimes we choose for ourselves. But then we're trying to reconcile this with God has a purpose and a plan for our life. And so there's this, this dichotomy. There's this battle within us. We see a great picture of that in Jacob. Think back to Jacob in Genesis. 
Jacob, later on in his life, God gives him another name. What's the name? Israel. Jacob means supplanter, deceiver. <clears throat> Israel means governed by God. Isn't that a picture of a dual nature? Of our own struggle as the flesh and the spirit battle it out with one another? So we see God's judgment coming, being laid out. And so there's several questions that I think Isaiah is going to ask us. That, And we'll talk about it again when we get to them. But there's several questions Isaiah is going to ask us and, and then he's going to answer. And here's the first one. How can a sinful, corrupt people become the servants of God? That's an important question, right? How do I become a servant of God? How do I enter into a relationship? How does that occur? And he's going to answer that question for us in chapter 6. So we're going to look at chapters 1 through 5. <clears throat> we're going to see our corruption, our rebellion, our struggle... Uh, um, symbolized through the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 6... In the calling of, of, of Isaiah, in his experience before the, the, the Holy of Holies, right? His experience before the Holy One, you know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. We're hopefully familiar with that section of Scripture from Isaiah 6. It answers the question, how does a sinful, corrupt people become the servant of God? The same way Isaiah did. How did Isaiah become a servant of God? God said, take a coal from the altar and touch his lips. Isaiah stood before Almighty God and said, Whoa, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We're broken, we're a mess, we're sinful and corrupt. How can I, how can I help, how can I serve you, God? And so God, through the, the fiery coal, right, purges his sin. What is that a picture of? God cleansing. God's forgiveness. God's grace. Entering into... I, what's the next part of Isaiah chapter 6? What's Isaiah saying, say next? God says, who will go for us? We've got a nation full of knuckleheads and we need to get the word to them. I wonder how we're going to get it to them. What's Isaiah say? Here am I. Send me. That picture... That story of the corruption of man, his desire for independence from God instead of trust, his pride, that's going to be a focal point all the way through Isaiah. As we, as we look at all the pictures and all the prophetic examples that we see working our way through, you're going to see that common theme. What's that common theme going to be about? Old Jerusalem and New Jerusalem, right? Well, we know New Jerusalem, Revelation talks about New Jerusalem, right? The, the place where God's people dwell. Old Jerusalem, that's a, the, the sinful place where God's people struggle. Or how about the old man and the new man? How about the transformation of an individual just in the same way that God's going to transform a nation through the experiences that we'll read about in Isaiah... And, and ultimately change a lot of the things going on. But the, the reality is the same. Who is in the new Jerusalem? The same amount of people who started in the old? No. Because a sinful man, a sinful man must have his sins purged to be a servant of God. That's one of the themes that we're going to see as we work our way through. 
So when we come after chapter 6, we come into chapter 7 and we're moving forward, we're going to see from 7 to 39, God calling His people to trust Him. Trust me, trust me. Have you ever heard that from God before? Anywhere in the Bible we ever have to talk about trusting God? Trusting God in our circumstances, trusting God in our trials, trusting God in our struggles. It's the same way. 7 through 39, over and over and over again, Isaiah is going to speak to kings, to the nation of Israel, to the people, and encourage them. Trust God. Trust God. And for a while, they're going to reach out to other people. Egypt. They're going to reach out to Assyria. They're even going to reach out to Babylon. They're going to reach out everywhere else but to God. But in the middle of that, in chapters 38 and 39... God's going to deliver the nation when Hezekiah uh, repents, when he humbles himself and trusts in God. God's going to send his angel. You guys have heard the story. God sends his angel and 186,000 soldiers of the army are wiped out overnight. And in one fell swoop, God delivers them from Assyria. And then Hezekiah forgets about it and goes back to Babylon. Does that remind you of us? Are we capable of doing the same thing? Has God delivered us or set us free or, or done something in our life only for later on for us to struggle in the same way? So as we look at it, it's such a great mirror. The book of Isaiah is such a great mirror to look at, to stand and see and to recognize as we, as we take a look at it that what God is calling us to is a place of radical trust. Radical trust. Enough humility, setting aside of our pride to radically trust uh, in what God is doing. So then the next question is this. What will motivate a person, what will motivate a nation to trust God radically? What will motivate us? What is it that takes us to the place where, where we'll trust Him? And we're going to see in Isaiah, in Judah's case... Though God demonstrated his power by delivering them from the Assyrians, remember 186,000? I mean, that'd be a big deal for you, right? If you get up in the morning, you go look outside your house, there's 186,000 people who want to kill you, right? And then you go to bed and you think, wow, that's not good, Lord, um, help me, deliver me. You, you get on your knees and pray, you get up in the morning, they're all gone. That's radical deliverance. Even though they experienced that, and God could show himself to be trustworthy, still Judah would not lay aside her trust in others. She wanted to go to Babylon. Well, now that Assyria is left, I need another friend. I need somebody to help me. Rather than reaching to God, she reaches to Babylon. So she, she didn't, even in all that, she didn't learn. She thought, God's not going to defend me. I need Babylon to defend me. And ultimately, what we find out is Babylon doesn't defend her. Babylon becomes the enemy. And we move toward the exile. So the question to ask is, why in that deliverance? Why didn't the, the nation of Judah, why didn't she trust in God? Why wasn't that the end of the battle? Well, ultimately, because it's not the end of our struggle with sin. When each of us had that moment with God and we, we had our come to Jesus meeting, right? We are on our knees before the Lord and we're asking God to save us. We're exhibiting humility and trust in God. Yes? And God promises to hear and to save. 
But then we have a walk to walk, don't we? We have a dealing with the struggles in our life. And we see that same picture in, in a sense with Isaiah in chapter 6. So when the nation of Israel in exile, now Babylon came against them, now they're in exile, they've lost their homes, they're, they're in Babylon uh, in, in a place of exile, lamenting, weeping over what they've lost. It's in that place that some are going to come to know God's greatness and some are going to understand His boundless love that they are still His people. That God hasn't given up on them. Have we ever been through struggles like that? The valleys in our walk with God where, where we're amazed that God still loves us. That we're amazed even though well, I've messed up again. Even though I've, I'm on my knees praying for forgiveness for the same sin again. That, that God still says, I'll forgive. For if we are faithful to confess our sins, He is what? Faithful to forgive. He will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make it, why? Because we did what? Humbled ourselves. Stepped away from our pride. Trust in God. You're starting to see that picture all the way through. I hope you start to see it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Because it's really a common theme that we have going. So here in exile, they're going to realize, recognize, some are going to recognize the greatness of God and the love that he has for them despite their failure. And they will say, like Isaiah did, here am I, send me. And what do they become? A light. To who? Everybody else. How does that happen in exile? At the end of exile, what happens? God raises up a king named Cyrus. He tells them they can go back. You know that not all of Israel goes back. In fact, most of Israel stays in Babylon. But there's a group who say, Here am I. Send me. That go back. They go back from the exile, back into the land. So the question, the next question that leads us to is, can a sinful Israel become servant Israel simply by choosing? And the answer in Isaiah is no. Any more than Isaiah of unclean lips could become Isaiah the messenger simply by choosing. What had to happen? His sins had to be purged. His sins had to be forgiven. There had to be an atonement. <clears throat> so by what means, how, then, shall Israel become the servant that, sh that, that she's supposed to be? Or how does this Israel become that Israel? Do you ever read in the New Testament and you're reading about Paul or Peter? And have you ever wondered the same question? How did that Peter become that Peter? I see that Peter, he's a mess. That Peter, he's not so bad. I see that Paul, he's a murderer of Christians. I see that Paul, he's a part of the church. You see what I'm saying? There's transformation, radical transformation that takes place in people's lives. How does this Israel become that Israel? How does that transformation take place? Right then we're going to enter into the section of Isaiah that deals with the suffering servant. The Messiah. 
picture of Jesus Christ. We're going to see this incredible picture, the rounding out, if you will, the vision of Messiah. How is it that he's going to accomplish this? By humbling himself. By trusting in his Father. Same way we do. No? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's a point in the, in, in the crucifixion of Christ, in the death, burial of Christ, where, where Jesus is placing his trust in his Father. Right? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm, I'm laying down this life. And I'm laying it down for you. And that picture in Isaiah is the picture that describes how it is that we are going to have forgiveness of sins. Because immediately after that story takes place in Isaiah, we have the discussion of, He died for my sin, for my iniquity, for my failure, for my brokenness, for my corruption, for my struggle. Isaiah is laying all that out for us. So that we can understand in the example first of Isaiah and then of the nation of Israel and seeing their struggle and journey so that we can place ourselves there and say, that's how I get straight too. That's how I get right, by trusting God. And then the last question that Isaiah is going to answer for us is an important one. Then how do I live as a servant of God? And that'll be as we come to the close of the book. And it's not all pretty. Does anybody know it's not all pretty? That, that we don't get saved and every, every problem goes away? We don't walk with Jesus and humble ourselves and trust in God and are guaranteed a life uh, uh, where all, we have all the answers? Anybody have all the answers yet? So we recognize that there's a struggle. Isaiah is going to talk about that struggle. He's going to talk about those things, those, those battles that we still see and that we still have. But in the end, <clears throat> the climax of the whole book is standing before Almighty God and the glory of God and experiencing the kingdom of God together. That's where the book's going. So it takes us from the beginning to the end through all of that that's just part of our struggle. It's a great book to, to look to for application. Are there incredible prophecies? Absolutely. We're going to talk about all those too. But as we look, I don't want you to lose sight of the big picture. Isaiah is telling us about God's redemption of man. It's like a mini Bible. It's going to, the book of the Bible, the Bible, 66 books. Isaiah, how many chapters? I wonder if that's an accident. Anyways, as we look at it, as we look at the book, it's the story of the Bible. God's redemption of man. It's the story of Isaiah. God's redemption of man. How he takes broken people and brings about God's promises to accomplish God's goal. Where we will, as we see at the book of Revelation, have an eternal home. Yes? We have a new heaven and a new earth, and between the two is what? A new Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? New heaven. That's the abode of the angels. New earth. That's pretty much where we've lived most of our lives, isn't it? And a new Jerusalem where the two meet. It's just fascinating to see all those pictures 
come together. So I guess I'm excited about Isaiah because better probably than any other single book that we're going to study, this one reveals the name and the nature of the God who invites us, who calls us to be His servant. He's holy. He's just. He has steadfast, loyal love, the chesed of God. He's glorious. He's terrible. He dwells with the lowly and the humble. Over and over we'll see that theme. He is faithful. He forgives us and He demands perfection. There's a reason for that. He's passionate, both in loving right and hating evil. He calls us to lay aside our independence day. And declare our dependence or trust in Him. Because He chose us. And He redeemed us in Christ. And He will empower us to be like Him. That's the book of Isaiah. You ready for verse 1? I still got four minutes. I didn't think I'd get past verse 1. So, so no shock. We'll get through verse 1. I promise the rest will go faster. <laughs> but I really want us to see that, that incredible picture. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. So it begins with this idea. This is the vision of Isaiah. I would say one of the best ways to understand that is to understand this is the unity. This book is the unity of Isaiah. It is the culmination of the visions and prophecies that Isaiah had. People, we'll let the scholars argue about who wrote what when. Okay? You guys okay with that? Because trust me, well I don't want to make any assumptions about you, but most of us aren't smart enough to understand those arguments. What we want to understand is, this is the vision or the unity of Isaiah. It has only and always been found in these 66 chapters. It has always been just like we see it now. We go back to 270 B.C. We go back uh, 100, 300 uh, B.C. We're going to find Isaiah just like it is now. Now we'll let them argue about whether Isaiah is the only one who wrote it. I mean really we all know somebody else wrote it, right? Hopefully you do, because Isaiah, he's going to write it, and then he's going to die, and then their scroll's going to pass to somebody else. What are they going to do? They didn't put it in a copy machine. What'd they do? They wrote it too, and then they pass that to a scribe, and they pass that to a scribe. So we know there are other hands that touch the book of Isaiah, but what we know is that God is able to deliver His Word to His people. Yes? God is able to deliver His Word, and He has delivered His Word. So this is the vision, the unity. It all fits There's no way to take Isaiah's vision out of it. There's no way to consider it three separate or divided books. This is one continuous message. Don't you see how that one continuous message goes all the way through the book? You can't cut that up into pieces anymore and you cut up the Bible. And throw out pieces of the Bible. We see that it's all (coughs) corresponding to Isaiah's vision. He's the son of a Mose. The son of a Mose. Now, (coughs) we don't know anything about a Mose. There is a Jewish tradition that says Amos was the brother of King Amaziah. He is the brother of the father of Uzziah in the year that King Uzziah died. 
so that Isaiah is in some way related to the family of the kings. Not a king, but related to him. We wonder sometimes why was Isaiah always had access to a king. I'm going to go talk to Hezekiah. I'm going to go talk to Uzziah. Right? Somehow there was an open door. Now that's not super uncommon because we know Ezekiel went in kicking doors down and talking to kings too. Right? So God's prophets did that. It may or may not be, but we do know he's anchored in history as the son of Amos. And this message which he saw is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now primarily... It's going to be a picture of two cities. Like we talked about in the video, Old Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. Transformation that takes place to get us from when we're lost until we're found. Right? Where I was blind and now I... The transformation that takes place in the life of someone who submits himself to God. This is what Isaiah is going to describe for us. What he's going to lay out for us. So, he's set in the divided kingdom. Northern Kingdom, Israel, they're going to be conquered by Assyria. We'll talk a little bit about it as we look at the prophecies in Isaiah. Southern Kingdom, Judah, that's where Jerusalem is, okay? So whenever we talk about rebellion, God's going to often point back to another city. That city is called Babylon, right? Babylon is going to become a picture of rebellion against God. Jerusalem is going to become a picture of those who are submitted to God. So if you stayed in Babylon, what were you declaring? You're declaring that you're continuing in rebellion against God. I'm going to find my own way, my own independence. I don't trust you. If I go to Jerusalem, what was I saying? I want to follow God. I want to go with Him. In the same way when the nations divided <coughs> from north to south. And, the, and the, the, if we think, you know, people lived in Israel then just like we live in the United States now. Alright, just because you started in one state doesn't mean you stay there, does it? If that was true, I'd still be stuck in crazy town. Okay, so, in the reality, those who wanted to follow God in a divided kingdom, and north was going into idolatry, and south was, at least in some ways, still worshiping God, those who wanted to worship God did what? They went south. Those who wanted to rebel against God did what? They went north. The divided kingdom. The northern kingdom is going to go into captivity. They're going to be destroyed by Assyria. The southern kingdom is going to be delivered by God from Assyria, but still not going to trust in God. So God's going to allow them to go into exile. This is where we're at. This is where Isaiah is writing from. And he gives us the days of Isaiah. From Uzziah to Hezekiah. Right? We're going to deal with these four kings. Now there is a tradition that Isaiah lived all the way to Manasseh, which is right uh, prior to the exile. Manasseh does something special to Isaiah. Anybody know what it is? According to tradition, Manasseh is the one who puts Isaiah in a log and cuts him in two. If you remember our study in Hebrews, one of the things it said about Hebrews, about the martyrs of God, it says, and some were sawn in two. Whether or not that refers to that event with Isaiah, <clears throat> you know, I, we can't know for sure. It's not scripture, it's extra biblical, but there is a tradition that that's what happened. Okay, so, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the story of two cities. Now, <clears throat> old Jerusalem, had, the city of peace, seems to have a hard time with peace. No? 
You ever turn on the news and the lead story is, Peace in Jerusalem! No? You guys have never seen that? I've seen bombs in Jerusalem. Shots fired. Not peace. I thought I'd just give you a quick rundown of the history of Jerusalem. 922 B.C. It was attacked by Shishak of Egypt. That's in 1 Kings. In 850 B.C. it was attacked by the Philistines and the Arabs. In 786 it was attacked by Joash of the northern kingdom. In 701 it was besieged by Shennacherib. We're going to read about that. In 610 it was taken by Pharaoh Necho. In 598 it was plundered by Nebuchadnezzar. That's Babylon. 586 the temple was burned by Nebuchadnezzar. 538... Cyrus lets them go back to rebuild the temple. 515, the temple's rededicated. In 445, Nehemiah <clears throat> goes to rebuild the walls. In 333 BC, it's, it, it's uh, visited by Alexander the Great. In 320, it's captured by Ptolemy Soter. In 302, it's given to Egypt. In 198, it's given to the Seleucids. This is during the division of the kingdom of Alexander the Great. In 170, Antiochus Epiphanes burns it down. In 167, it's set free by the Maccabees. In 63, it's taken by Rome under Pompey. In 44, its walls are rebuilt by the father of Herod the Great. In 70 AD, it's destroyed by the Romans. In 130, it's rebuilt by Hadrian. In 335, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built by Constantine. In 614, it's taken by the Persians. In 637, it's taken by the Saracens. In 1076, it's taken by the Turks. 1098, it's given to Egypt. In 1099, it's taken by the Crusaders. In 1187... It's taken by Saladin. In 1228, it's assigned to the Christians. In 1243, it's taken by the Charismians. In 1247, it is conquered by Egypt and the Mamluk rulers. In 1517, it's taken by the Ottomans. In 1917, it's conquered by General Allenby of Great Britain. 1948... It's fought over by Jews and Jordan, leading to a divided city of Jerusalem. 1967 is conquered by the state of Israel. It is currently in a dispute between Israel and Palestine. So, the city of peace is a great picture of the old city. But one day there's going to be a what? A new Jerusalem. A new one that really fulfills God's purpose and plans for <coughs> transformation. And that transformation, not only individual for you and me, that transformation, not only for the nation, that transformation is for the world, right? There will be a new heaven, new earth, new creation. All of this, all of these themes so beautifully wrought for us through the book of Isaiah. Finally, it says, in the days of these four kings... It's going to cover roughly a 400 year period of time. 400. So we're pretty sure Isaiah didn't live for 400 years, right? 
But he's going to write about things that are going to take more than 400 years to happen. Incredible, incredible study as we work our way through um, this book. So when we look at this, when we, when we talk about this, here's what we realize. Even throughout Isaiah, there's going to be this picture of Isaiah, go tell, go share, go speak. But they're not going to see. They're not going to hear. Because their hearts have become hard. But a few will. A few will respond. Just like we see today. Just as the journey we're about to take through the book of Isaiah. I hope you're excited. I know I am. About where Isaiah is going to take us. Uh, I promise. Multiple chapters in the future. (laughs) But today I just really wanted to kind of sketch it out. What it looks like. And I hope that gives you a vision of, of where we're going. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to come before you, to lay out this study, God, where we can just see you move in power and might, uh, God, in the nation of Israel, and mirror how you are moving in my life individually, mirror how you will move in my nation, and mirror how you will move globally, universally. Wow, it's just so incredible, all the, all the pictures we can see, the journey that, uh, that is laid out before us. God, I pray that you give us just a heart to comprehend and understand the challenges that Isaiah is going to lay out before us. And I pray, Lord, that we will not, as we look at this study, see the failures of a nation that we can't understand, but, but be able to see myself in the pages of Scripture. And to hear God's cry over and over again for his people to humble themselves and repent. And God, that I would be quick to respond when that call comes for me. To call out, to repent, to put my trust in you. Because that is where the empowerment of the Holy Spirit can take over. Lord, we just pray that you would move in this place. We give you thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.